Welcome to the History of English Podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 81, Love Songs and Troubadours. In this episode, we're going to turn our attention south, to southern France. Some important developments were taking place there, and those developments were destined to shape the political and literary history of Europe. A new type of courtly culture was developing in southern France, and that culture was about to spread northward to northern France and beyond. And when that culture crossed the English Channel in the mid-1100s, it set the stage for a political and cultural revolution within England itself. That culture brought new rulers, new standards of behavior, new words, and a new type of literature. So this time, we'll explore the origins of the troubadours, courtly love, romance, and Eleanor of Aquitaine. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com. And you can always reach me directly by email at kevin at historyofenglishpodcast.com. And I'm on Twitter at EnglishHistPod. So let's turn to this episode. And this time, I want to explore several important developments which shape the history of England and the history of English literature. In this podcast, I try to take a very broad approach to the history of English. I like to explore the history of words and the evolution of English grammar and phonetics. And I like to examine how political and cultural events help to shape the language we speak today. But I also like to keep an eye on literature, the way the language was actually being used at the time, from chronicles to poems to histories. You can't really explore the history of English without considering the history of English literature. So this time, we're going to shift our focus back across the channel to France, where a new type of poetry and literature was starting to take shape. This literary revolution was part of a larger culture that was about to make its way to England thanks to one of the most important women in medieval history. As we explore these developments, one of the underlying themes is going to be love, especially the role of love in song and literature. So a good place to begin is with the word love. It's an Old English word, louvu, and that may actually be a little surprising. We usually think of French as the language of love. And most of our words associated with love come from French. That includes words like desire, cherish, affection, romance, attraction, passion, and many others. But love predates all of those words in English because it was part of the original Anglo-Saxon vocabulary. But if we were to go back to that original vocabulary, we would find that the word love, or louvu, didn't necessarily mean romantic love. It often had a broader, more general sense, and that sense can still be found in modern English. Love originally meant any type of strong affection. So knights loved war, kings loved power, merchants loved money, and clerics loved God. So love didn't necessarily mean romantic love. We get a sense of this more general sense of the word love in the Peterborough Chronicle. In fact, this is a good place to pick up where we left off a couple of episodes back. Back in episode 79, we looked at the anarchy in England, and we examined the accounts recorded in the Peterborough Chronicle. The entry for the year 1137 contains the famous passage where the scribe says that Christ and his saints were asleep. 
Well, immediately following that passage, the scribe shifts his focus to mention the abbot who was in charge of the Peterborough Abbey during those trying days. The abbot was named Martin, also known as Martin of Beck. And the scribe includes the following passage about Martin. He writes, He was a good monk and a good man, and for this reason he was loved by God and good men. And was good monarch and good man, and for they him loved and good and good a man. So the Peterborough scribe uses the word loved or luvidan, but he uses it in that more general sense of a strong feeling or affection for something. He was loved by God and good men. Now, a survey of Old English manuscripts reveals that the word love could be used to mean romantic love. Occasionally, there are references to a man's love of a woman or vice versa. So that was a sense of the word love, but it wasn't necessarily the primary sense of the word. In fact, romantic love was rarely addressed in Old English literature. Unfortunately, most people during this period couldn't read or write, so we don't really have private diaries or personal letters where we might expect to find someone expressing their love for someone else. If any such diaries or letters were actually written, none of them have survived. In terms of the surviving literature, all we really have are the documents written by the scribes who were mostly trained in church schools. Many of them were monks. They wrote about church matters, and they prepared government documents. They maintained histories and chronicles, but they didn't really write about romance. Now, there were also traveling minstrels and shopes. They recited poems and told stories about people, and some of those stories and legends were written down by scribes. So that provides us with a body of more secular literature. But again, those stories weren't really about romantic love. They were epic poems, poems about great heroes who fought great battles or faced great challenges. They were often about bravery and loyalty. Think Beowulf or The Wanderer or The Battle of Malden. Again, those poems weren't really about love and romance. In fact, if we want to find poems about love and romance, we would have to go back over a thousand years from the current point in our story. We would have to go all the way back to classical Greece and Rome. The last great period of romantic poetry or literature before the current point in our story was around the first century B.C. That poetry was composed in Rome around the time of Julius Caesar by the great Roman poet Ovid. That was right at the end of the Roman Republic, which soon gave way to the Roman Empire. And once the Roman Empire was in place, a new set of morality laws were enacted in Rome which were intended to encourage marriage and discourage adultery. The punishment for adultery was severe, and it appears that one of the victims of those morality reforms was this type of love poetry. It was thought that erotic poetry tended to promote adultery. As I noted, poetry did survive, but it survived in other forms. It survived as traditional epic poetry, laments, and dramatic poetry. These poems were composed by minstrels and Germanic shopes. English was actually one of the first local vernaculars to capture this type of poetry in written form. Again, we have Beowulf and Witsith and the Wanderer and the Seafarer. It's generally thought that all of those were written down for the first time in very early Old English. That tradition of epic poetry 
was also found in France. But for the most part, poetry and other literature in France wasn't actually recorded in French. It was still being written in Latin. French was still a relatively new language, and it was still seen by many as just a local vernacular, not really fit for literature. But all of that changed around the year 1100, when epic poetry was finally composed in French for the first time. That poem was called The Song of Roland. I've mentioned this poem before. It was set during the time of Charlemagne a few centuries earlier, and it describes a great battle during an invasion of Muslim Spain by Charlemagne's forces. This new type of epic poetry composed in French was called the Chanson de Geste, literally the songs of great deeds. They were very much in the epic tradition. They were stories about great warriors of the past who performed heroic deeds. So, at this point in our story, we have a well-established tradition of epic poetry in Old English, going back several centuries, and we have this new type of epic poetry in French. But we still don't really have poetry about romantic love. But all of that was about to change. And to follow those changes, we have to shift our focus south a little bit, to the south of France. So far in the podcast, I've spent quite a bit of time discussing events in France, because they had a significant impact on the history of England and the history of the English language. But almost all of that discussion has been focused on events in the north, from Paris to Normandy to Brittany to Anjou. All of those regions are located north of the River Loire, which runs through the middle of France. But south of the Loire, the culture was quite different, and so was the language. First, let's focus on the language. Way back in episode 44, I looked at the development of French from Latin, and I noted that there was this basic north-south divide in France. The dialects of northern France were called the Languedoc, and the dialects of southern France were called the Languedoc, and those names were based on differences in the pronunciation of the French word for yes. In the north, oil eventually became we, and in the south, the word for yes was pronounced oak. So those dialects became known as the Languedoc, literally the languages of oak. The word oak also produced another name for some of these dialects, Occitan. That term can have slightly different meanings, but it's often used to refer to these southern dialects. Another term that's sometimes used as a synonym is Provençal, or Provençal, depending on your pronunciation. It was once used more as a general term for these southern dialects, but today it tends to refer to the specific dialects spoken in the region of Provence. But anyway, I'll just refer to these dialects as the southern French dialects, to keep it simple, and to distinguish them from the various northern French dialects. As we know, most of the dialects spoken in the western part of continental Europe derived from Latin. They were the product of regional differences that developed over time. And as you might expect, there weren't really any sharp dividing lines between these dialects. So as you traveled south from Paris, you gradually encountered accents that were more and more unique. And those differences continued deep into southern France, and then continued across the Pyrenees into northern Spain. So there was this continuum of change. And that meant that the dialects of southern France had more in common with those of northern Spain than they did with those of northern France. And in fact, the differences were so great that people from southern France could barely communicate with speakers in northern France. 
In fact, many people in northern France considered those dialects to be a separate language altogether. Beyond the linguistic differences, there were also some basic cultural differences. Whereas the north of France had been the scene of more or less constant battles and sieges, southern France had experienced much less violence. It had been more peaceful. In the south, life was more laid back and relaxed. That's not to say that warfare was unknown in the south, but it was nothing compared to the constant state of war in the north. Since the counts and dukes in the south of France were not engaged in constant warfare, their courts reflected that difference in lifestyle. They had time and energy to spend on other matters. So a completely different type of courtly life developed in the south, more laid back, more refined, more cultured. The South was closer to Italy, so it had more traditional Roman and Latin influences. It also had a close connection to northern Spain. And as we know, Spain was controlled by Muslim armies from northern Africa for many centuries. So Arabic influences also filtered across the Pyrenees into southern France. All of these influences contributed to a very distinct culture in the South. Much like the North, southern France was divided into a series of counties and duchies, each ruled by a distinct count or duke. But by the 11th century, most of the western part of southern France had coalesced into a massive duchy called Aquitaine. It encompassed the entire southwest quadrant of France. It was a sprawling region, and it included cities like Poitiers and Bordeaux. It was warm, and it had very fertile land. The countryside was dotted with vineyards, and it had an active trade in wine. The importance of the wine trade in the region is evidenced by the fact that the word funnel comes from this region. It's a French word, but it's more specifically a southern French word. Funnels were used in the wine trade to pour wine into bottles and other containers. It's actually related to the word futile, which originally referred to a leaky container. A leaky container was unreliable, and that sense of being unreliable led to the modern sense of futile as something hopeless and not worth the effort. So futile refers to any kind of container with a hole in it, and in southern France, funnel referred to a cone-shaped container with a hole in it used for pouring. I should also note that funnel is related to the word refund. Sometimes you might pour wine or another liquid into one container and then pour it back into the original container. To describe the process, the Latin prefix re was added to the word fund, meaning to pour, and that produced the word refund. So refund and funnel have the same Latin root. But funnel comes specifically from the wine trade in southern France. So wine was a valuable commodity, and so was salt. The region had a very lucrative trade in salt as well. Over time, the region grew wealthier and wealthier. The courts at Aquitaine were luxurious compared to those in the north. People dressed in fancy, colorful clothing made with quality fabrics. The words velvet and velour come from the dialects of southern France. Women wore makeup and perfume. Again, the word perfume comes from these southern dialects though the original sense of the word may have been more literally fumes like burning incense. The evidence also suggests that personal appearance was very important in the courts of Aquitaine. That included an emphasis on hygiene. Nail and ear cleaners were commonly used. And drawings and paintings from the region commonly depict combs, 
which suggests that people were concerned about the appearance of their hair. Other descriptions indicate that dining was cultivated and elaborate, and there was an emphasis on proper manners, both at the table and elsewhere at court. With more time to spend on leisure, the southern courts spent a lot of time on entertainment. Minstrels found lots of work in the South. And this is probably a good point to look at the etymology of the word minstrel because it reveals a lot about the evolution of minstrels over time. As you might expect, minstrel is a French word, and it ultimately comes from Latin. In the early Middle Ages, kings and other nobles were surrounded by a variety of servants and officials. There was also a basic division in their roles. There were the major officials and the minor officials. Major and minor are both Latin words. A major official was an important or superior official, and he was sometimes called a magister based on the word major. A minor official was a more lowly official, like a household servant, and he was sometimes called a minister based on the word minor. So you had magisters and ministers. Over time, the words major and magister produced lots of other words, and several of those words passed into English. They gave us words like majestic and majesty, as in your majesty. They also gave us the word magistrate, which was an important government official. The word major also gave us the word mayor, ultimately the person in charge of a city. And when the G disappeared from magister, it gave us the word master. So those were the major officials. But then there were also the minor officials, the ministers. These were people of lower authority, very often the bureaucrats and household servants. From minister, we get words like administer and administration, referring to the more mundane, day-to-day -day activities of civil servants. The word minister has survived within British English to refer to certain government officials. Of course, the leading minister or government official is the prime minister. Within the church, the word minister took on a secondary meaning. Originally, it referred to an attendant of a priest or a high-ranking cleric. But over time, the sense of the word expanded within the church to refer to any cleric or priest. So that's how we got the sense of the word minister as a religious leader. But let's go back to those medieval courts, which were full of ministers or household servants. Those servants had lots of different responsibilities, and for some of them, those responsibilities included entertainment. They were expected to sing and dance and provide music at mealtimes or special events. These singing ministers soon became known as minstrels. So minstrel is derived from the word minister. Now, as I just suggested, minstrels were much more than just singers. They danced, they played music, they told stories and recited poetry. They told jokes and performed magic and juggled. Some of them were acrobats who performed tumbling routines, so they were all-around entertainers. Again, these performers were called minstrels, but another word developed to describe these minstrels, and that word was the French word jongleur. The modern French J sound je hadn't developed yet, so in Old French the word was joglier, and that word did pass into English. In early Middle English, a joglier was basically another word for a minstrel. It meant an all-around entertainer. The word joglier eventually became our modern word juggler. 
So, over time, the word became restricted to someone who tosses and catches objects. But originally, it was just another word for a minstrel. In fact, it might surprise you that the word juggler is one of the first words borrowed from French after the Norman Conquest. We expect to find French terms associated with the government or the feudal system, but as early as the year 1100, we find this word rendered as yogliera in a handwritten Old English translation of a Latin religious text. So it actually predates most of the government and feudal terms borrowed from French, and that reflects the important role of minstrels and entertainers in the culture at the time. Since juggler was such an important job and word in the Middle Ages, let's look a little closer at that word. Before English juggler, we had that Old English word jogliere, and the Latin root word that gave us jogliere also gave us the words joke and joker. So joker and juggler are actually cognate. Over time, one version of the Latin root word has come to mean a person who tells funny stories, and another version of the root word has come to mean a person who juggles. But we can see that the original root word included both activities and referred to a general entertainer. So if joker and juggler both come from the same Latin root word, meaning an entertainer, you might be wondering about the word jester, as in a court jester. In fact, if you ever look at a deck of playing cards, the joker is usually depicted as a jester. And if someone is jesting, they're usually being funny and joking around. So surely joke and jest must be related, right? Well, no. The word jest comes from a different root. In fact, it's a root that we've already explored in this episode. Remember those French epic poems, like the Song of Roland? Remember what they were called? They were called the Chanson de Geste. And that word geste, or geste in Old French, meant deeds or actions. And that's the word that gave us the words jest and jester. A jester was someone who recounted these gestes, or great deeds. So a jester was originally more of a poet and singer. So all of these words, jester, juggler, and joker, were basically synonyms for a minstrel or courtly entertainer. But over the centuries, each has acquired a more specific meaning. Joker and jester both came to mean an entertainer that makes people laugh. Juggler came to mean a person who tosses and catches objects in the air. And minstrel came to mean a person who plays music and sings. Now, one other quick note about the words joker and juggler before we move on. I noted that those words originally had a more general sense as an entertainer. And I should note that the root word that produced joker and juggler also produced the French word jeu, which means a game. So this root word produced words related to telling funny stories, throwing objects in the air, and playing games. By the way, one type of game in early French, which I've mentioned before, was the jeu de pomme, literally the game of the palm, but it was sort of like handball, and it developed into the sport of tennis. And if you ever watch tennis, you'll know that the starting point in scoring is love. Then it goes to 15, then 30, then 40. So you might have love 15, then love 30, then love 40. So since love is one of the themes of this episode, you might wonder what tennis has to do with love. Well, nothing really. 
In tennis, the word love comes from the French word for egg, so it's similar to how we say goose egg for zero today. The French word for egg is oeuf, so when you put the article la in front of it, you get l'oeuf, and that became anglicized over time as love. So in tennis, love is basically the French word for a goose egg. So anyway, since we're talking about fun and games. Let's return to fun and games in the medieval courts of Europe. As I noted, entertainment was a fundamental part of the medieval court. Minstrels were in demand everywhere, but nowhere more so than in Aquitaine. The wealth, relative peace, and leisure time in the south meant that there was a lot more time for entertainment, and we get a sense of that culture from the southern French words that have survived into English. Many of those words have to do with courtly entertainment. So, for example, many words for musical instruments have Southern French origins. Minstrels played the flute, as well as stringed instruments like the viola and the lute. Many scholars think all three of those words have origins in the dialects of Southern France. Of course, viola also gave us the word violin. The minstrels of Aquitaine sometimes performed songs that were intended for dancing, the type of songs that might be performed at a ball. In the southern French dialects, it was called a ballade, and that gave us the word ballad. Of course, the minstrels didn't just play music; they also sang songs. And in southern France, they had a word for a short song; it was called a sonnet. This came from the same Latin root as the word sound. Over time, the word sonnet passed from southern French into Italian and then into English as the word sonnet. Meaning a short poem, and today we often think of sonnets as a very particular type of poem, one having fourteen lines with a certain meter and rhyme scheme, and usually having themes of romantic love. So once again, this takes us back to our theme of love. I started this discussion by noting that poets wrote about romantic love in classical Greece and Rome, but that tradition had largely died out with the rise of the Roman Empire. And it hadn't been seen in most of Western Europe for over a thousand years. Minstrels performed epic poems about great heroes. They also sang short songs about famous people and events. They performed political satires and May songs about happiness and the glory of springtime. They sang about going on crusades, but they didn't really sing about love, at least not until the eleventh century, and that's when everything started to change. And it started to change in those courts in Aquitaine. By the 1080s, Aquitaine had come under the rule of a duke named William. As we've seen before, William was a very common name by this point. In fact, this particular William was the ninth duke named William to rule Aquitaine, so he's known to history as William the Ninth of Aquitaine. William came to the throne in 1086. And to put that into some perspective, that was around the time that William the Conqueror died in Normandy. Now, as the Duke of Aquitaine, William's political accomplishments were very modest. He fought with his vassals, and he even led an army into the Crusades, but they were soundly defeated. He also spent a lot of time fighting with the Church, but despite being a very mediocre ruler, he's actually a very important historical figure, especially for those interested in Western literature. Because his contribution to history was not as a ruler, but as a poet. 
He was one of the first persons in Western Europe to compose songs about love and the pursuit of women since the time of the Romans. It was a new style of performance, and a southern French word was coined to describe these types of romantic poets. That term was troubadour. And William the Ninth of Aquitaine is considered to be the person who started that tradition. Now, it's very likely that there were other poets performing similar songs around this time in Aquitaine. But William's songs are the oldest to have survived the centuries. So that makes him the first known troubadour. And he's sometimes called the Troubadour Duke. Now, William of Aquitaine is a fascinating figure. And in order to understand his role as a troubadour, we need to take a closer look at William as a person. Let's just say that William was a lover, not a fighter. And maybe lover is giving him too much credit. He was really more into lust. He apparently kept a large number of mistresses, and he loved to sing songs about them and his pursuit of them. A later Vita, or short biographical poem, about William recalls that he was, quote, one of the greatest courtiers in the world and one of the greatest deceivers of women. He was a good knight at arms, liberal in his womanizing, and a fine composer and singer of songs. He traveled a long time through the world, seducing women. We don't know how many songs William composed, but eleven of his songs have survived the centuries. Some of the songs show a reverent view towards women, but most of them were bawdy, erotic, and perhaps even blasphemous. They were also composed in his native southern French dialect, so that meant that they were intended for everyone to hear at court, not just those who spoke and understood Latin. This was around the same time that that epic poem, The Song of Roland, was composed in the north of France, and you might recall that it was also composed in the local French vernacular. So this was a period when French was starting to be used for poetry and literature. In one of William's songs, he compares two of his mistresses to horses. He says that he has two horses that he loves to saddle and ride, and he can't keep them both because they can't stand each other. He wishes to tame them so he can keep them because he would be mounted better than anyone else. In another song, he writes that he once met the wives of two knights and he pretended to be someone else. When they addressed him, he pretended to be deaf and mute. He says that one of the ladies told the other, We found what we're looking for, sister. By all means, let's host him, since he is dumb, and nobody will know our purpose with him. He says that they led him back to their room for a night's entertainment, but they weren't sure if he was lying about being mute. So they brought out their cat, and they had the cat scratch him repeatedly to see if he would speak, but he didn't. He writes, Suddenly she pulled the cat by the tail, and it scratched me. They gave me more than a hundred sores, but I wouldn't have budged, even if they had killed me. Thereafter, the one lady told the other, He is dumb, it's clear. Sister, let's get ready for merriment and pleasure. He says that he stuck around and enjoyed their pleasures for forty-one days. The poem gets more graphic after that, and after describing his merriment with the women in some detail, he concludes with a stanza directing his servant to deliver his poem to the two women. He writes, Monet, you shall go in the morning, bringing my verse in your purse, straight to the wife of Sir Guari and Sir Burnet, and tell them, for the love of me, to kill that cat. 
So as you can see, this isn't exactly Beowulf, or the Iliad and the Odyssey, or the Song of Roland. These were graphic and sometimes erotic poems, set to music, and intended to be sung with musical accompaniment in front of an audience, usually a courtly audience. Within a short period of time, this type of song flourished in southern France. The troubadours were the rock stars or pop stars of their day. Many of their songs were bawdy, risque, and erotic. It started a revolution that completely changed the songs of the minstrels. But more importantly, it changed the history of Western literature. If you want to look for the origins of Western romantic literature, from Shakespeare's sonnets to Harlequin romance novels, it really begins here in Aquitaine with the troubadours. As I noted earlier, the word troubadour comes from those southern French dialects. The names of over 400 troubadours have survived the centuries, and many of their songs have also survived. There's no doubt that they were patronized by the prominent nobles of Aquitaine, and the troubadours were an important part of the courtly culture there. Most of these songs celebrated love and the pursuit of women. But to be fair, most were not as bawdy as William's songs. Rather than focusing on sex, many of the songs tended to focus on romantic love. Usually the troubadours sang about the beauty and excellent qualities of noble ladies at court. The songs were often about the wife of a lord or superior. She was depicted as beautiful and distant, with proper manners, and an expert in courtly customs. The songs were often about a young knight who was in love with a noble woman, but the knight was considered inferior and unable to requite his love. So there was often a theme of unfulfilled longing and adoration and worship at a distance. The knight often tried to prove his worth and his love through his actions, through his bravery, and through his courtly behavior. So love was really the motivating force to make him a, a better and more noble person, to become worthy of the love of the lady. And I think you can start to see the emergence of something here that I alluded to in the last episode about knights. What we see emerging here is a basic notion of chivalry a type of knightly behavior that's proper and noble and courtly. These notions will soon get added to the concept of the crusading knight, which we explored last time. In fact, this is really the point where we can start to combine some of these themes. Most of these troubadours were actually knights and nobles. Troubadour poetry required a certain basic amount of literacy and knowledge of literature. And the sons of nobles and knights were typically receiving a formal education by this point. And those classical poets like Ovid were part of that curriculum. So most scholars agree that the young knightly troubadours were influenced by the writings of those classical poets. It's also important to keep in mind that Aquitaine had a relaxed culture with a laid-back court. There was more leisure and free time. So those young knights didn't spend much time at war. They also tended to be unmarried. So the court at Aquitaine had an abundance of these young, single, educated knights, familiar with classical authors like Ovid. They were hanging around the court, looking for something to do to pass the time. It was a court dominated by these young men and relatively few women. Other than the small number of noble ladies, who were usually married, and a few of their female attendants, there weren't a lot of women at court. 
So this starts to explain the development of the troubadour culture. They were young, literate knights, longing after women they couldn't really have, and looking for ways to entertain each other. What was emerging in Aquitaine was not only a new type of musical performance, but also a new type of knighthood. Rather than focusing on fighting, these knights were focusing on their personal feelings and emotions, and they were focused on proper gentlemanly conduct and courtly behavior. That was the way to win the love of a woman, even if that love was forbidden. By this point, you will have noticed that all of this activity was taking place in the same general place, the courts of Aquitaine. That's where the knights were, as well as the troubadours and minstrels, and the noble ladies. That's where proper manners were expected, and that's where songs of love filled the air. That was also where political business was decided. So it was the center of political and cultural activity. So it shouldn't really be surprising that the word court has survived in a lot of words which reflect these various activities. I should note that the Peterborough scribe was the first known person to use the word court in the English language. He used it in his final entry for the year 1154, where it's rendered as court. Of course, it was a French word, and the original meaning was the place where the attendants of the king or prominent noble gathered, usually at the residence of the noble. It was a place where important political and legal decisions were made. And that legal sense of the word court has passed into modern English. So you might have to go to court at the courthouse. But the medieval court was also a place where proper behavior was expected. That was especially true at a place like Aquitaine, where knights were expected to have good manners and respect women and treat other knights fairly and honestly. A specific word for that type of courtly behavior soon emerged. That word was courtesy, and it eventually passed into English as the word courtesy. The word for court also produced the word courteous. It also produced the word curtsy, a show of respect and deference to a superior. So the court was a place for making political decisions, and it was a place where proper behavior was expected but it was also a place where troubadours sang love songs and knights expressed their love for the ladies of the court. And that type of activity is expressed in another version of the word court, when a man courts a woman. It's a bit old-fashioned today, but it was once a common term for dating. You probably know the song Froggy Went A-Courtin', and that folk song dates from no later than the 1500s. So when we speak of courting or courtship, we're hearkening back to the courtly romance that was first made famous in the songs of the troubadours and other minstrels. Another related version of the word court is courtesan. It was literally a woman of the court, but as we've seen, there were relatively few women at court. Most were noble ladies, and most of them were married. So a courtesan came to mean a kept woman. It then acquired the sense of an escort or prostitute especially one catering to wealthy men. By the way, the word court is also related to the word chorus and choral and carol as in a Christmas carol. And if you want to find out how those words are connected, check out the most recent bonus episode at patreon.com. So the court was the place where all of our themes come together. Politics, law, poetry, songs, knighthood, 
proper manners, love, and romance. The court was the place where all of these aspects of medieval culture blended together. And that blend of ideas ultimately produced the concept of chivalry, which was being forged in the courts of places like Aquitaine. But how did these concepts spread from Aquitaine to the rest of Western Europe? Well, that's where we have to return to the man who kick-started it all, the first known troubadour, William IX of Aquitaine. William's reputation as a womanizer was based in part on his songs, but it was also based on his personal life. And about 30 years into his reign as the Duke of Aquitaine, he sealed that reputation. William was married, but when his wife went away on a charitable mission, he pursued the wife of one of his vassals. And when I say that William pursued her, I mean he literally pursued her. He went and abducted her from her bedchamber and took her back to his palace at Poitiers. The woman's name was, appropriately enough, Dangerosa. And to be fair, it appears that Dangerosa was a willing party to the abduction. So she stuck around the palace. When William's wife returned from her mission, she was shocked to find Dangerosa there. There wasn't much the wife could do about it, so she went to the church officials to get them to intervene. They did intervene, but to no avail. They threatened to excommunicate William, but he'd already been excommunicated by the church for another offense. So when the church officials threatened to excommunicate him for a second time, William didn't really care. After his second excommunication, William had Dangerosa's portrait painted on his shield, announcing that it was his will to bear her in battle, just as she had borne him in bed. William's wife eventually gave up, and the marriage was annulled. William then turned around and married Dangerosa. William and Dangerosa each had children of their own. William had a child named William, of course, and Dangerosa had a daughter named Anna. And Dangerosa suggested that their two children should marry each other. The Duke agreed, and the marriage between the two stepchildren was soon arranged. After the marriage, the younger William and Anna had a daughter named Eleanor. One theory is that Eleanor was named after her mother, Anna. In Latin, the phrase alia Anna meant the other Anna. So there was the mother Anna and the daughter Eleanor, literally the other Anna. It was apparently a very unique name at the time, but it soon became a very common name throughout Europe. And that's because Eleanor was about to become the most famous and powerful woman in all of Europe. When Eleanor was born, her grandfather, the Troubadour Duke, was still alive and kicking. But when she was about five years old, he died. Then her father, the younger William, became the Duke of Aquitaine. It doesn't appear that Eleanor's father was the womanizer or troubadour that her grandfather had been, but he did continue to patronize the troubadours. And in fact, there appears to have been an explosion of troubadour culture during this period. It also appears that the laid-back, courtly culture continued to be on full display during Eleanor's childhood. She was educated in both Latin and the southern French dialect of Aquitaine. And based on her later history, it also appears that she could speak and communicate in a northern French dialect. So she was very literate. Eleanor was soon joined by a younger sister and a younger brother. But the brother died in childhood. So by the mid-1130s, that left Eleanor and her younger sister as the heirs to the Duchy of Aquitaine. 
In the year 1137, Eleanor's father went on a pilgrimage to Spain. He fell ill during the trip, apparently from drinking contaminated water. And he soon realized that he wasn't going to survive. So he named Eleanor as the heir shortly before he passed away. He knew that she would face certain challenges as the Duchess. And we know from the story of Matilda that women didn't generally act as sovereign during this period. And to put this into some context, the anarchy was just getting underway in England when Eleanor's father died. So he would have been aware of Matilda's succession problems there. So he tried to secure Eleanor's position in Aquitaine by naming the French king, Louis VII, as her guardian. Of course, the Duke or Duchess of Aquitaine was a vassal of the French king, so it made sense to make the king her guardian. But that arrangement posed its own problems. He didn't want Aquitaine to be swallowed up by the French crown, so he stipulated that Aquitaine should not be incorporated into the king's royal domain. The region was to remain independent and could only be inherited by Eleanor's children. As expected, Eleanor's father soon died and Eleanor became the Duchess of Aquitaine. The real question at this point was whether she was going to be able to hold on or whether Aquitaine would fall into anarchy as England had done when Matilda was named as her father's heir. It was at this point that Louis, the French king, stepped in. He was now Eleanor's guardian, and he saw an opportunity to bring the massive region of Aquitaine under his control. He had a 16-year-old son, also named Louis, and he quickly arranged a marriage between his son and Eleanor. Now, this marriage was awkward from the start. By all accounts, Eleanor was one of the most beautiful women in all of Europe. She was rich, she was powerful, and she was accustomed to the opulent court at Aquitaine. She was confident and outspoken and self-reliant. So it was going to take a strong, powerful man to live up to her expectations. And the younger Louis was just not that man. Louis had an older brother who everyone expected to succeed his father as king, And young Louis had actually been sent away to train as a monk. He was destined for a life in the church. But his older brother died, so young Louis was brought back from the monastery to become the designated heir to the throne. He was pious and monkish, more acclimated for a life in the church than a life in the royal court. And he was not a good fit for the headstrong Eleanor. But as we know by now, love and affection were largely irrelevant when it came to royal marriages. Marriages were arranged to create political alliances, and the marriage of the younger Louis to Eleanor was a shrewd move by the French king. If Eleanor and Louis got married and they had a son together, that son would be destined to inherit both the royal lands around Paris and the entire duchy of Aquitaine. That would bring Aquitaine under direct royal control. King Louis dispatched his son down to Aquitaine, where a quick marriage ceremony had been arranged. The king was in very poor health at the time, so he stayed behind in Paris. The younger Louis and Eleanor were married in Bordeaux in July of 1137. At that point, Eleanor had only been duchess for a few weeks, and now she was about to be the queen. Immediately after the marriage, the newlyweds headed back to the royal court at Paris. But while on their journey, the king died. When the younger Louis and Eleanor arrived in Paris, they arrived as the new king and queen of France. 
When Eleanor made that trip to Paris, she was accompanied by many of her attendants from Aquitaine. And when the Aquitanians arrived in Paris, they received a frosty reception. Not only were Eleanor and Louis very different people, they also had very different courts. The Aquitanians spoke a southern French dialect that was hard to understand in Paris, so communication was a problem. And Eleanor dressed and behaved extravagantly, and she enjoyed a rich palace life. She enjoyed minstrels and entertainment. The French court, however, was more accustomed to war, and their idea of entertainment just wasn't quite the same. Eleanor's troubadours sang songs at the court in Paris, songs that had never been heard by the more prudish northerners. They were more accustomed to epic poems like the Song of Roland. But over time, the northerners started to accept this new form of poetry. It found an audience there just as it had in the south. And over the next few decades, minstrels in the north started to compose their own songs about love. The troubadours of the south started to be called trouvères in the north. And it was the same basic idea, and it was spreading northward. And that spread was due in part to the minstrels brought to Paris by Eleanor of Aquitaine. Around this same time, in the mid-1100s, poets started to combine these two types of songs. The troubadour love songs of the south were blended with the epic poems of the north, the chansons de geste. And the result was a new type of poetry and a new type of literature, These new stories combined the heroic themes of epic poetry with the love themes of the troubadours. The stories were often about great and brave knights, especially those of Charlemagne's court or King Arthur's legendary court. They were brave and loyal, but they were also consumed by love and passion. Some aspect of the knight's personal character was tested, but he usually succeeded in the end. And love was an important motivating factor, as the knight tried to prove that he was worthy of his lady's love. In traditional epic poetry, the hero was a warrior. In this new style, the hero was more of a lover. In epic poetry, the hero sought the praise of his lord or comrades. In this new style, the hero sought the love and approval of his lady. So all of these themes that we've been exploring were getting mixed together. Think Lancelot and his love for Guinevere. That was one classic story which developed from this new style of literature. But what do you call this new type of story? It wasn't troubadour poetry. It was more epic. And it wasn't epic poetry because there was an emphasis on love. The name for this new style came from the language used by the poets who composed those stories. Almost all of this new type of poetry was composed in local French dialects, just as the troubadours had composed their songs in their southern French dialects. These local French vernaculars were sometimes called the Romans, the rustic languages derived from the Romans. That term had been around for a while to distinguish these local vernaculars from the formal Latin. So you might speak Latin, or you might speak a local vernacular derived from the language of the Romans, and those local vernaculars were therefore called Romans. And that's where we get the term Romance languages, for languages derived from the Romans. And since this new type of epic love literature was being written and composed in the local vernaculars, the so-called Romans, these works started to be called 
Romans. And that gave us the term romance as a type of literature. So that explains the connection between a romance language and a romance novel. And this is really the beginning of romantic literature in Western Europe. So southern troubadour poetry and northern epic poetry had a happy marriage in the north, and it led to the advent of romantic literature. But that happy marriage wasn't duplicated between Eleanor and Louis. Their relationship was more like oil and water. By all accounts, the two argued constantly. We're told that Louis loved Eleanor, but the feeling wasn't mutual. The marriage did produce a child, a little girl, but there was no male heir. And French custom required a male heir to inherit the throne. The marriage was especially tested during the Second Crusade. Louis decided to embark on the crusade, making him the first king to take part directly in the crusades. Eleanor accompanied him, as did all her luggage and attendants. Louis's French troops were joined by German troops from the Holy Roman Empire. But they all suffered massive defeats. Lots of men were lost, and several thousand even remained behind in the Near East and were converted to Islam. It was a military disaster. The marriage of Louis and Eleanor was falling apart during the course of that crusade. She challenged his decisions, and it was even rumored that she had had an affair with another military commander in the region, who happened to be her uncle. That rumor may not have been true, but the couple reached the point where they were barely speaking to each other. In April of 1149, Louis and Eleanor boarded separate ships to take them back to France. When Eleanor returned to Paris, she famously proclaimed that she had married a monk, not a king. The marriage was hanging by a thread, but she was pregnant. She had already given birth to a daughter, so there was a hope that the second child would be the male heir that Louis so desperately wanted. But Eleanor gave birth to another daughter. This was a time when women were routinely blamed for failing to give birth to a son. So Louis apparently blamed Eleanor for failing to produce a male heir, a son that would bring Aquitaine under direct French control. This seems to have been the breaking point in the marriage. Divorce was not permitted by the church in the 12th century, but a marriage could be annulled, especially if the husband and wife were closely related to each other. And there were so many marriage alliances between the members of the French nobility that everybody was related to everybody else and that included Eleanor and Louis. They were actually cousins, so plans were made to proceed with an annulment of the marriage on that basis. As those plans were proceeding, the court at Paris received a visitor, a young, handsome prince from Anjou. His name was Henry, son of Geoffrey Plantagenet of Anjou and Empress Matilda of Normandy and England. Henry was pursuing his mother's claims to the Anglo-Norman kingdom, Though civil war continued to rage in England, he had a potential claim to England, Anjou, and Normandy through his parents. If all of that worked out for him, he might one day become the most powerful ruler in Western Europe. So this appeared to be just the man that Eleanor had been looking for. And he might even be a king himself one day if everything worked out in England. And if all of the land claimed by Henry was combined with Eleanor's homeland of Aquitaine, it would give them control of most of France as well as England. That would make them the most powerful couple in all of Europe. 
So, for a couple of young and ambitious people like Henry and Eleanor, it was love at first sight. Well, political love, if not romantic love. Next time, we'll see how Eleanor's ambitions were soon fulfilled. The consequences will be far-reaching. It'll shape the future of England and France. This political marriage also shaped the English language by reinforcing the French influences in England and introducing French as a written language beside Latin. It also pushed English completely out of the picture as a written language for several decades. It also introduced romantic poetry to England. A new era of romantic literature quickly emerged, composed in French, but dominated by stories of King Arthur and his court. And in keeping with the romantic tradition, these stories usually involved themes of love and chivalry. So all of these changes were about to reach the English shores. Next time, we'll explore all of those developments. But before I conclude, let me remind you that you can support this podcast at patreon.com. Just go to historyofenglishpodcast.com and you can link from there. A $5 monthly donation gets access to all of the bonus content there. And the latest bonus episode there focuses on the ultimate origins of love poetry in Greece and the numerous words which those Greek poets contributed to English. So be sure to check that out if you're a supporter at Patreon. And until next time, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast. Podcast.